Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Hey, Modern Therapists, we're so excited to offer the opportunity for one unit of continuing education for this podcast episode. Once you've listened to this episode, to get CE credit, you just need to go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, register for your free profile, purchase this course, pass the post-test, and complete the evaluation. Once that's all completed, you'll get a CE certificate in your profile, or you can download it for your records. For a current list of our CE approvals, check out moderntherapistcommunity.com. Once again, hop over to moderntherapistcommunity.com for one CE once you've listened. Woohoo! Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast for therapists about the things that we do in our practices, the things that show up with our clients. This is another one of our continuing education eligible episodes, and we are diving into the world of parasocial relationships. And admittedly, the idea for this topic came up when I had feelings about one of my favorite bands recently within the last few months uh, announced that they were splitting up and I amongst many other fans turned to the internet to deal with feelings be like is this actually real is this something that this is just some sort of weird joke that's played and it wasn't and there was a lot of grief feelings being expressed and just kind of shock. And I was like, I can't be the only one who is like, this has got to be showing up in therapy at some point. And as we prepared for this episode, I thought that maybe some of the feelings that I was initially having were of kind of a negative sort of thing, like people shouldn't be having these kinds of things. And as I was doing a lot of the research towards what parasocial relationship kinds of things show up in therapy, I was actually surprised that there wasn't a ton of information out there in general as far as how it shows up in therapy. But I was even more surprised at how little negative stuff about how this is a bad thing that should be avoided and that kind of stuff. So some positives, some negatives coming out of this episode today. but is I kind of am going to put you on the, the spot here, Katie, a little bit to start with. When I first proposed this episode, what was your thoughts about parasocial relationships and showing up in therapy? Well, the first thing was I was like, what is a parasocial relationship? <laughs> 
So that's probably going to be a really, really good place to start. And in 1956, Horton and Wool were the first ones to define a parasocial relationship. And this largely boils down to these are non-reciprocal social-emotional connections with media figures such as celebrities or influencers. And that relationship was largely first looked at as far as how people felt about celebrities like newscasters, the ones that you would go home with each night. You would see people on TV. They would be the trusted news source because they were there. They were consistent. And I, I mean, I even remember kind of some of the the newscasters that I remember my parents having on TV, you know, Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw and that kind of stuff mm -hmm. back when I was growing up, that it was just kind of like, oh, this is comfortable. This is somebody in the background that I know and trust them because of their consistency. News media being what it has changed over the last 30 plus years. Yeah, that not so much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> don't, I don't know that it's boiled down to the three or four channels that came over the air and sure. antennas back in those days, but I don't think that it's necessarily changed that parasocial relationships continue to happen. But really, the emphasis on this is kind of these one-sided emotional relationships that people get into, particularly with celebrities and. Uh, influencers and youtubers and award-winning podcast hosts <laughs> so so you're you're gonna call out our fans saying that they are having parasocial relationships with us <laughs> absolutely and i i think that this also kind of you know goes back to one of the topics that we had originally talked about in some of our first episodes just as far as you know brand called you kinds of things yeah. and being able to have the confidence to put yourself out there understanding that Sometimes in content creation, people are going to create ideas about you, about what it's like to be in a relationship with you. And that's what we were speaking about back then. We just weren't calling it parasocial relationships. Well, I think, I mean, this is off base. So I'm going to say this and then we can move on. But in Brand Called You, we were talking about purposely having a brand, a curated therapist brand. So clients would have that relationship ahead of time and get started in therapy. I mean, it just, I, I, my my mind is starting to kind of spin out on, you know, at the time, were we saying purposely create parasocial relationships so clients would buy from you? Well, so <laughs> we'll, we'll get into kind of that buying influencing thing a little bit yeah, later yeah. in this discussion here. But what we were also talking about is even as we were talking about things like, all right, whether you want it or not, there's going to be content out there on the internet about you. And we were speaking that that is something where people are potentially going to develop relationships with you. And so if that's something that we have to accept, that that is information that is out there, people are going to develop a relationship with that, then why not guide what that relationship looks like. And that's kind of the same way that we would have real relationships is yeah. that we want to put a certain idea about ourselves out there. And it's not really the topic of this episode here. And we'll probably go back and revisit that topic in a future episode. But what is happening is people are developing the relationship with that. And I want to focus more on 
them and their feelings rather than what it is to craft that from kind of the influencer side or the business owner side. Of course. And I think, you know, kind of going back to your question of what was my initial thought about this, to me, the there's a a normative experience here. You know, I think about the the types of parasocial relationships we have. And from my experience of it, I look at the the small parasocial relationships we have, people that we barely know that are Facebook friends, right? Like, yes, you know, there's 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 the kind of general level. There's the, you know, award-winning podcast hosts, you know, and other kind of quote unquote thought leaders in, you know, the professional space. There's, you know, actual celebrities with probably your, if if you're even interacting with them on social media, it's probably a member of their huge social media team. And then there's, you know, political leaders and people with actual power in the world (laughs) that you may have, you know, parasocial relationships. I have to say, I probably had a parasocial relationship with Jacinda Arden of New Zealand during the pandemic (laughs) (laughs) because I was like, she's so cool, you know? And so I think there's that element of this feels very normative. And I think there's the point where it goes to the place of obsession or delusion. I mean, I don't know if that's within our conversation today. We'll see how we how far we get. But to me, it seems like having leaders or people who stand out, who you know about, who you don't know, we're going to have relationships with these people. So I, I understand you were having grief feelings about your band, but assuming that meant that it was unhealthy, I think was a leap. To me, it seems like we all have these relationships. Uh, you know, I was in the era of teenage girls that had all of these, you know, magazine cutouts on my wall of all the stars of the day. I mean, it it just seems normal to me. And so to me, I'm I'm looking forward to having the conversation around, you know, how you deal with the, the normative stuff and when that comes into the room and then also the stuff that goes beyond that becomes potentially harmful. Sure. So in Lynn Gwynn's TED Talk, she states that parasocial relationships are psychological bonds where a viewer develops a relationship with a media personality, where they feel like they're friends or closer despite having limited real-world interactions. These relationships tend to invoke numerous positive and negative effects. Parasocial relationships have been found to impact an influencer's credibility by mimicking two-way familial, platonic, and sometimes even romantic relationships to build trust between them and their audience, thus gauging how marketable they are while fulfilling the audience's belongingness needs. These mediated relationships provide a safe space where audience members can be creative and more confident in themselves, but can swing the pendulum too far and the mediated figure becomes a source of escapism rather than enjoyment. Now, I take out of this that one of the ways that this has largely been done here, especially since the advent of social media and YouTube and this kind of stuff, is that understanding that 50 years at this point, I think YouTube was invented around 2006, but from that original 1956 kind of definition that, hey, we have relationships with newscasters and they're very one-sided, that corporate just kind of ability to market through influencers is now done in a way that 
is to sell you stuff, and it is done in a way that is very intentional and crafted sometimes that can swing some of these healthy relationships into very negative spaces. I know that for many people, it's, okay, this celebrity that I follow makes this recommendation. This, you know, is is something that we don't know how many contracts are signed behind the scenes for them to naturally just be like, oh, I found Seedless Grape brand by this tube, (laughs) and it's so delicious. And it, it just makes people more likely to buy into Seedless Grapes. Yes, and for folks who have no idea why you went to seedless grapes, we do have a whole episode where we use seedless and seeded grapes um, in conspiracy theories. So I'll add that to the show notes for your your listening pleasure. But um, to me, when you're talking about it, I think about you know the the newscasters of old that was extremely curated, extremely neutral. I was watching a. a a series like a teaching series from somebody that was in one of those positions and and he was like I don't I never voted in elections so I could truly report in a very neutral way like very different from the the quote unquote news folks or or influencers of today but still very very curated right and and I think about today the the way that it's designed and maybe this is what you're saying is that this element of creating the relationship on purpose, that authenticity or that, I'm going to put in air quotes, authenticity. We kind of talked about this in an, ep- in an episode that's going to come out in a couple of weeks um, with Casey Compton about creating this persona that is authentic and connecting, but may not have much to do with the person behind the scenes, right? And so with how much social media has become part of our lives, I feel like the the there's more of a likelihood that someone's going to feel like they're in a true relationship with someone they just follow on social media versus this, you know, Dan Rather that is, you know, somebody that you watch for like an hour a day with this very crafted persona that's that you see for very little time. I want to point to a 2003 article by Giles. Giles elaborated that there's multiple dimensions of parasociability. And this is really starting to take from the the parasocial relationships of our parents' generation or even our grandparents' generation if we're going back to the 50s and depending on who our listeners are, maybe even your (laughs) great-grandparents' parasocial relationships. But the multidimensional aspects have evolved quite a bit that it used to be where you know you had your antenna and there would be the two or three news channels that would come over you'd or you'd have the radio program that would be on you know for several hours out of the day where you were listening to kind of one voice where that has now evolved to where you can have a lot more social interactions or parasocial interactions with people. The number of ways that we can have parasocial interactions, particularly through social media, where it's not only just kind of the, here's information that is scheduled at a certain time of day that's kind of predictable, but where this can now seep into our lives, where we're waiting for the next Instagram post, or we're waiting for the next TikTok post, that can drive a lot more heightened feelings of anxiety and feelings to be in the know or turn into kind of the super fans to be the first to know of breaking news from somebody or be the first one to like or 
knowing that some of the people that we're in parasocial relationships with might only respond to the first handful of people who comment when something is posted. And as you've mentioned, sometimes it's not just the person themselves, but an entire team that's crafted yeah. around to be able to respond that does start to potentially shift who's responding, who, what your idea of who you're in a relationship with, and kind of starts to be a lot more fodder for kind of projections and projective identity and that kind of stuff. In the same article, Giles talks about that boundaries kind of change when there's these mediated and interpersonal contacts. And Giles talks about slippage around the object of relationship. That What do you mean by slippage? That parasocial relationships can kind of change when we have more opportunities to interact with people. That, again, if we go back to kids put on your imagination history hats here but <laughs> there used to be things like fan clubs where you would like send letters into somebody else and there was oh, yeah. kind of this anticipation <laughs> of like are they going to open it are they going to you know smell the perfume that i sprayed on it and you know mm -hmm. respond back to me whereas there's a lot more of that instant gratification aspect that comes with social media now and so this slippage is kind of more into kind of the 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 user's feelings or the the feeling around like the person who's on the observing end of the relationship the one who's engaging in it as opposed to the celebrity who's out there that leads me to a question because i think that and maybe this is off base but when i think about kind of the celebrity folks that's pretty far removed like that's someone that maybe i'm sitting at, you know, maybe I'm sitting in the front row or maybe I'm sitting 200 rows back, right, in a in a concert or I'm the first person responding and maybe somebody from their social media team is responding to me, but I feel like I'm involved with them. And then there's kind of the the parasocial relationships that are a little bit closer. You know, the 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 folks who are thought leaders who like us, like we have Q and A's and people can come and talk to us or, or put on events and you see them and you talk to them for a few minutes or those types of things where there is some interaction. Like at what point does it become less parasocial and actually social? It's a good question. And I don't know that there's a, a really clear definition. It, it's what you're referring to sounds like it makes it sound. And I think that this is accurate as there's a continuum there. Yeah, yeah. And I think that a lot of the parasocial definitions really talk about it being a lot more one-sided. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we talk about like the happy hours or the Q and A's that we kind of put out there, there's definitely the people who show up consistently to those things and, and we have relationships with and, them and we have actual relationships with them that i would say has shifted it from being a parasocial relationship into mm -hmm. something that is an actual friendship or an actual working relationship yeah. you know i think about uh, the second therapy reimagined conference that we had where you know somebody had a bone to pick with you after the episode <laughs> that you had put before and is now somebody that we we actually really get along with well. We goodness. get along with well. I when <laughs> I'm in her neck of the woods, I make sure that I reach out to her and be like, "Hey, I'm I'm gonna be in town. Do you have time to get together?" So, I think that this is something where 
it's when it shifts from kind of this one-sided relationship mm-hmm. to uh, being something that's a lot more of a two-way street that takes it out of this parasocial relationship yeah. interaction. Well, I think the the reason I asked that question is when you're talking about the different ways that you can interact in with social media, there's also folks, you know, like Tony Robbins, you know, I think about all of the the parasocial things that happen, but people come and probably take selfies with him and do all this stuff at his gigantic events. I mean, it starts to to creep into this, you know, almost a two-way street, but a lot of contact in a lot of different ways. And I think about how someone can easily go to a place of feeling like it's very much a a social relationship versus still remaining a, a parasocial relationship. And so I, I know we're going to talk about some of that later, well, but I, I think it's... No, it's, um, we're going now? Okay. We're, we'll jump in on this now. So what we're talking about is when there's parasocial interactions. So when you're talking yeah. about coming up and doing a selfie with Tony Robbins or with us when you meet us or this kind of stuff. <laughs> and, and you don't know us well and we don't know you well. Or you know that, us, we don't know you. <laughs> that That's still uh, what's defined in the literature as a parasocial interaction. As okay. it, it, just because you've met somebody, you know, whether it's at a merch table, whether it's at a conference or something like that, doesn't turn it into a two-way relationship. This is yeah. just like it's an interaction that if the object of the relationship, the celebrity, the podcast host, whoever it is, is <laughs> still not aware of you and engaging with you regularly afterwards as a two-way communicative relationship, that still falls as a parasocial interaction on a parasocial relationship. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think about how intense our you know, whether it's AI or automation or those stuff where you feel interacted with by the person because they put your name into the email and they have stuff that's potentially curated a little bit to your interest. And so it feels more and more like the interaction is with you <laughs> if you've signed up for all the things and done all the things for your your parasocial object. Yes. Thrizer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Now, there's a lot of aspects of positive parasocial relationships, and these things can happen across the lifespan in childhood, in teenagehood, in adulthood, even older adulthood, and around a number of different identities. And 
to be clear that parasocial relationships don't even have to happen with real people, that these things can happen with uh, things like cartoon characters, they can happen with yeah. books. So, you know, when... yeah, I was just I was thinking about my husband liking uh, spinach because of Popeye. <laughs> exactly. And this is where some of those really positive influences can end up happening. And some you know, well-meaning parents and can use it for benefit as far as things like, you know, eat your spinach so you can be strong like Popeye. And, you know, whether your husband was, you know, imagining him as like a four-year-old doing this or even as a 44-year-old doing this, I <laughs> I can imagine you just going home and making dinner tonight. And just sure. Being like, sure. <laughs> Uh, but this can lead us to uh, engaging in a lot of positive behaviors and a feeling of a sense of belongingness. Um, there's quite a bit of research. We'll put uh, our references over in our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com that can help us to be more committed to things like uh, self-efficacy. And in particular here, I'm referencing a chapter in the Oxford Handbook of Parasocial Experiences. This chapter is by Shira Gabriel, Ariadne Young, Esha Nadu, and Veronica Schneider called How Parasocial Relationships Affect Our Self-Concept. And they talk about self-efficacy around things like uh, being able to achieve one's goals, that when People who are associated with uh, online people who have high self goals or remained consistent with particular goals. The example that they use here is around weight loss. I'm not a huge fan of using that no. as the example here, but they also talk about, for example, a particular study that they referenced by Howe and Cheryl found that parasocial relationships with strong female political leader characters on shows like Madam Secretary, The Good Wife, and Scandal were associated with higher political self-efficacy. So there is a, an idea around like these are things that help build self-confidence in ourselves. Uh, there's also a fair amount of research around particularly LGBTQ plus youth who are able to have parasocial relationships with people who may be in safer environments or more openly talking about their experiences coming from the same community as well that helps to build self-confidence in those communities. It seems like there's a lot of positive here. I think about, you know, especially lately, uh, a lot of celebrities and other folks are talking about mental health awareness and normalizing a lot of, of those things. So I, I like that a lot. When you were talking about community building, I was thinking about the parasocial relationships with sports teams and and how that builds whole communities. I mean, talk about fan clubs. It's hard to think about how this could be negative when you see so many opportunities for positive. It's, you know, somebody that's doing well in the world, usually that has something interesting to say. You follow and connect with the people who you admire. Potentially you take on some of their things, whether it's, you know, you dress similarly or you use the products that they use or those types of things. But I can also see, you know, now that I'm, I'm speaking that out loud that like, it can be very impactful and potentially harmful if the person who's in that role of kind of parasocial object, I'm making that up, but um, who's in that role isn't, isn't conscious or is strategically using that for their own gain without consideration for the people who are having these parasocial relationships with them. 
Uh, I'm going to highlight something that you said earlier, and then I'm going to come back to your concern here. But one of the things in this chapter is identifying with fandom as a mechanism and Mm -hmm. feeling as part of a larger group because a lot of higher fan identity is associated with higher relationship well-being. But to your concern, some of the negatives on this have been, you know, kind of time immemorial around things like body image issues. And we, I mean, I was aware of this, you know, with the magazine covers in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. uh, And it didn't stop then, but, you know, continues to be now, you know, not only in the supermarket checkout aisles, but also on TikTok and Instagram and all of that kind of stuff that all the filters and exactly you know that, it used to be Photoshop now it's it's filters that everybody has <laughs> and so those do have a really big negative uh, self esteem effect and can lead to things like eating disorders and really negative body image and all of the those aspects. And because uh, this is is still from uh, the chapter by Gabriel Young, Nadu, and Schneider, um, because of the effects that parasocial relationships can have on the self and people's ability to assimilate that onto the self, part of how we turn this into something that can be good in therapy is helping people to identify uh, positive role models for things that they want towards their therapeutic goals. So if you are working with eating disorder clients, it's not being like, hey, get off TikTok. Maybe people probably should anyway, but um, (laughs) but it's if you're going to be on TikTok, help it get to an algorithm around other people who are espousing body positivity and helping your clients to be able to surround themselves with positive messages around self-acceptance. They also go on to talk about uh, the escape from demands on self. And this is about uh, people shifting away, thinking about their own individual selves and using parasocial relationships as an aspect of escapism, kind of that fantasy life around, hey, I want to be like this person. This person is so well put together. This person is who I can imagine myself being or fantasize being because their life is so well put together. I think, I mean, I can see escapism is not always bad. So I don't know if that's what you're saying. But I think there's that element of this person is so well put together and they have, you know, they're they're attractive. They've got their life together, whatever it is. And that being another reason why I'm not good enough. And so I, I feel like it, it can hit both sides where you're escaping and kind of going into this world and just kind of imagining yourself in it and not living your life. And then there's also this other side of it being a constant reminder of what you don't have. And this is part of the advice to therapists is asking about the kinds of content and in, and influencers that people follow. So that way you have an idea around the kinds of messages that people get. I think that a lot of good intake background kind of things talk about social relationships, but I think that we might fall a little bit short as far as asking where are the other influences in, in someone's life really coming from? Yeah. You know, I can have a, you know, a group of consistent friends, but if the people that I follow online are a bunch of people who espouse garbage and hate speech and that kind of stuff, then it is something that can kind of infiltrate and 
uh, is good therapeutic fodder to actually look at, like where else are your influences coming from? This is something that's across the lifespan. I think for a lot of people who work with teenagers, it's like, yeah, of course we know that this is a really big part of life, but like, who do you follow online and how does that end up impacting you? And what does your, your engagement with that content really look like? Yeah. I think about folks who have their chosen, you know, even news source um, where that becomes, they, they listen and that's, very much how they operate with the world. I mean, the person that came to mind was Tucker Carlson and and so many folks that were so into what he was saying and talking about. And my assumption is continue to follow him wherever he went after Fox News. But like, to me, it seems like there are there are huge influences that we don't hear about if we don't ask about it. I had a client who um, was a Swifty and I had no idea. You know, it was something where all of a sudden uh, this client was just like, hey, I realize I haven't told you I am a total Swifty and I consume all of their content and blah, 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 blah. Like <laughs> I was like, oh. And so it was an interesting conversation about why and what that was and all of those things. But I think it's that element of if we don't ask, we're making a lot of assumptions based on how we interact with the world and we don't necessarily, especially if they're the clients from a different generation or, or those types of things. I think it's, it's a good question to ask, I guess, how do you ask it? I mean, you have a lot of teenage clients, but how do you ask that question or, or might you ask that question if you haven't asked it before? I mean, I'm pretty open about it as far as like, you know, Hey, we talk about your friends. Like, what do you do online? Like, who do you, hang out with who do you follow who what content do you listen to who's your youtubers who's this kind of stuff so that way it's i mean it's pretty straightforward to be able to be like hey where are you getting your information that Mm -hmm. and you know some of this is as educated adults and assuming that most of our listeners to this episode are other professionals, I think that we can kind of hold that space around, okay, some celebrities are going to have these teams. You're not interacting with celebrities. They're piecing together this very, you know, perfect life kind of thing. They're not being, you know, really, you know, authentic and vulnerable at every particular moment. And even those moments might be very well crafted Mm -hmm. where, especially for some of the digital natives that kind of are like, okay, I can maybe kind of hold that that's an idea, but it doesn't seem real because the engagement with content is just kind of ever present. So I'm pretty straightforward in how I ask about this, but this is really something where I think that we might not as a field end up really looking at just how strongly this stuff is influencing our clients until it has already maybe potentially over-influenced clients. And so whether this is around things like eating disorders, whether this is around things, body positivity sort of stuff, that it's looking at where else are you getting these messages? Because even if you have a solid group of friends, those friends are still on social media and they're still going to be talking about that kind of stuff. And there's almost kind of this normalization that ends up happening out of other people's parasocial relationships as well. Yeah, it's I mean, it can be all consuming. And so if we don't explore it, I think it becomes very. We only have a very small view into their life and not the full one. 
So some of the research on parasocial relationships also looks at there are certain kind of people who might be more prone to engaging in parasocial relationships than others. Now, I've seen a couple of different angles around this, some of which points to that this might be tied to people's attachment styles. And some of the early research on this was done by Tim Cole and Laura Leitz, and they uh, did some surveys around people's attachment styles and who was more likely to engage in parasocial behaviors. And they ended up uh, coming to the conclusion that anxious ambivalence were the most likely to form parasocial bonds. Anxious ambivalence. Is there is there more information about why they think that? There is, and I'm glad that you asked this. This comes from the <laughs> Journal of Social and Parasocial Relationships, and this is uh, from 1999, so this is a little bit dated. A but, little bit. <laughs> and I'm pointing to some of these older studies a little bit because this seems to be something that there's a lot of calls for current research around. There's some stuff that's mm -hmm. being put out there as far as like YouTubers influence in parasocial relationships. But because of how long this terminology has been around, it has kind of ebbed and flowed a little bit as far as its clinical applications for psychotherapists. Mm -hmm. So some of the stuff I can see where I'll write it it was studied for a while, then it kind of fell into the background. But a lot of this seemed to happen before the really strong presence of influencers and those kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So their conclusion was that it's possible that parasocial bonds with uh, individuals with anxious ambivalence form simply because it's uh, reflecting another manifestation of their desire for intimacy, even if the intimacy is with a TV character or somebody who is unattainable. It's also possible, they say, that turning to relatively stable TV characters is a means of satisfying unrealistic and often unmet relational needs. And this is uh, backed up by a number of studies that even looked at kind of people's feelings around television shows that come to an end. There was a bunch of research in the 90s of people who were kind of super fans of the TV show Friends and mm -hmm. how people's moods uh, ended up changing after that show came to an end. There's also some research, and we can post some links to this stuff, around when TV shows get canceled prematurely and there's kind of the fan petitions to bring the shows back yeah. on. Um, the study that I came across uh, looked at people from the TV show, my so-called life. Oh, uh, interesting. So, and I'm sure that this has become even more prevalent. I don't know if there's any studies, but where online access to these kinds of position petitions allows for people to engage in this a lot more, but being able to kind of look for either steady characters as uh, an unmet relational need. Uh, before we were recording, Katie and I were talking about the number of people during the COVID-19 pandemic who just kind of always had the office on in the background, that it was just kind of like, here's this nice, stable, uh, yep. predictable show that is going on in the background. These are people who are having relationships. And it, now that I'm saying all of this out loud, how weird is it that we were all at home and then watching a show that was set in an office? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to go back to the point around the anxious, ambivalent uh, attachment style. I mean, my my thought process around it 
and my understanding of anxious ambivalent is anxious and also not seeking relationships as strongly because of the anxiety. Is that what anxious ambivalence is? The ambivalence is like, maybe I'll have relationships, but it's too scary. So I don't want to think about it. Yeah, uh, that's a, a pretty fair way of boiling that down. They also came to a conclusion that some of the less secure, secure attachment to people, so secure attachments, but not super strong secure, sure. uh, would also be more likely to engage in this. But they showed a little bit more uh, cynicism and reluctance to engage in it than the people yeah. in the anxious ambivalent category. And so so I just want to nutshell it for you for what I think you had just said is that this kind of these folks who are maybe a little less secure or actively engage a, anxious but ambivalent about these things, they're they're finding comfort in these parasocial relationships, a little bit of escapism, a little bit of relationship needs met, but kind of being able to sit back and not do the work of real life. Yes. Okay. So there's another couple of studies on this, but um, what they ended up kind of coming to some more conclusions is that 1997 study by Cohen found that anxious men and non-avoidant women engaged in parasocial interactions. And the authors of this study believe that the Cohen study had some initial insights into how attachment styles influenced alternate strategies that people employ when attempting to satisfy their relational needs. Almost these interactions, almost as a way of starting to test out being able to have different kinds of social relationships, not just yeah. parasocial relationships. So it's a way of kind of trying this on. This study also said that people with avoidant attachment types tend not to avoid in or tend not to engage in parasocial relationships. And I think that that's fairly obvious at face value there. You say that it's obvious, but I think there are folks who will claim an avoidant attachment style that may have these parasocial relationships. So is that saying that they're not actually avoidant? <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's quite possible. I, I mean, and maybe I'm... I, I'll admit I'm oversimplifying this just a little bit and kind of mm -hmm. uh, looking at kind of some of the points that we want to hit here. But some of the attachment style conclusions around this is that engaging in any kind of consistent relationship from that very avoidant attachment uh, ends up being something that is still seen as unrealistic or still seen as being unworthy of engaging in a relationship that even if it's a parasocial relationship, that the difficulties of maintaining something consistently uh, just don't fit within that attachment style. Yeah. I could take it or leave it, right? Like, yeah, you did. You said something I don't quite like so much. I'm not going to give you any benefit of the doubt. I'm out. Yes. <laughs> all right. All right. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. Well, I want to talk about the other group that has been identified in the literature on this, and that is oh, people yes. with social anxiety. Oh, uh, for sure. I can see that a hundred percent. Okay. So tell me more about kind of your <laughs> initial reaction on this. Well, I just think about the clients who I have uh, in my practice that are are very socially anxious, and many of them 
have these parasocial relationships, whether it's with real people or fictional characters or shows or that kind of stuff. And it's very soothing. It's, hey, here is something very safe that I can watch that get that takes care of some of my social needs, but I don't need to actually engage with the real world uh, to be able to to kind of go here. It makes a lot of sense to me because to, there's, I mean, I don't want to keep saying the word escapism, so that's not exactly what I'm trying to say. It's it's this fantasy life. I, I think for me, I'll I'll go back to the the pandemic when I wasn't socially anxious, but I couldn't go out. <laughs> and and I think about the the books that I read. You know, books I'd read so many. Uh, so many times that I read again so I could go and live in that world and feel comforted. I think about the people who I watched and what they were doing and, and all of that stuff. And there was a certain amount of it where like, if it was too many people or whatever, I was like, Oh my gosh, why aren't they not? Why are they not social distancing? But to me, it's just this, this gentle move into this place that feels social ish that doesn't require me to actually, you know, quote unquote people. Yeah, I I think that that's uh, what a lot of the literature ends up backing up as well. And this is where, while there can be a lot of positives towards getting into, all right, we can prep and we can learn things about confidence and being in relationship. We can even learn particular skills around being in relationships with people for people with social anxiety in general, this is also where there can end up being a true double-edged sword in this, in that social anxiety and some of the parasocial relationships with uh, some of the online influencers can end up being something that both of those co-mediate internet addiction. And it's kind of used as, I'm engaging with people, therefore I'm social. I mean, how many teenagers have we heard talking about, like, yeah. you know, I do have friends, they're online, even yeah. though this is... You have to check if they're actually social relationships or parasocial relationships online. Yes, but it almost becomes kind of this three-sided problem where some of the benefits tend to overshadow some of the, the negative aspects of it, because... If what that relationship means is that I need to ignore the things in my regular life so that way I can immediately go online to be available or to engage, you know, live streaming as opposed to the recorded streaming later on that can foster internet addiction. So and, you said that the benefits outweigh the the negatives. I think you meant the opposite, right? The negatives. No, what I'm what benefits. I'm saying is that we at first glance we can say, oh, well, at least he's engaging with somebody, or at least they're oh, engaging with got somebody. It, got it. That that can overshadow that we also have to be cautious about this kind of stuff. Uh, this is from a 2019 article in Computers and Human Behavior called "The Relations Between YouTube Addiction, Social Anxiety, and Parasocial Relationships with YouTubers." A moderated mediation model based on a cognitive behavioral framework by Braille Gian and <laughs> Bunger. <laughs> but really being able to have to talk about that YouTube addiction can be a part of uh, a, almost kind of a self-medicating way for people with social oh, anxiety yeah. that uh, I'm... I'm engaging with people. It just because they're not in real life doesn't mean that I'm not happy with the way that my relationships are developing. 
And that needs to be an area of clinical concern that we look at, particularly for those who identify as socially anxious or those that we see as having socially anxious behaviors. I think this can go beyond social anxiety, too. I just think about how many folks with trauma or grief or different things will just go down the rabbit hole with these things because it truly is dissociative. I mean, it's it's a way to pass time without thinking. Yeah, and this can then lead into some of the the negative aspects of things. And I'm drawing some larger conclusions or piecing together some older information on this is that we have not yet gotten to kind of parasocial breakups, which is either when the people that we're in relationships with uh, disband, like my band, yes. uh, whether it's people that the social relationships or the parasocial relationships end up doing something incredibly negative, so people like Kevin Spacey, people like JK Chris Rowling. Brown, J.K. Rowling, where yeah. there can create a lot of cognitive dissonance around how do we engage in continuing to have a relationship with them? And that's something that needs to be processed through kind of the origins around, is this starting from a socially anxious place? I have created yeah. such a strong parasocial relationship with someone that this is my only friend or one of my only friends, and therefore I need to continue to follow them even within the negative aspects out of what they're doing. Or uh, some of the other ways that parasocial breakups end up happening is when people retire or the celebrities end up dying. And yeah. there there can be uh, problems related around that. For example, uh, after Princess Diana died in the late 90s, there was a, a, a lot more suicide among particularly women between the ages of 30 and 50 um, that was outside of the normal trends around suicide for people in that age bracket. And so some of the theories around this kind of developed that sometimes these parasocial relationships can be so strong that mm -hmm. the death of somebody in and of itself ends up being uh, something that really harms somebody's own self-identity just because they're engaged in a parasocial relationship with them. I think about the the celebrities who die by suicide, and, and that's a different thing than what you're talking about here. Yeah. Uh, just for comparison, uh, in the aftermath of like Robin Williams' suicide, Suicide across all age groups tended to go up as suicide was being talked about in the news. Yeah. And kind of the same with uh, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. This yeah. was a very particular demographic around Princess Diana that ended up being something that was really just kind of looked at as being mediated by parasocial relationships. Like I've lost my sense of self because the person who I have created who has defined me is now gone. This vacuum means that I can't be alive anymore. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yes, it is. It's so interesting because I think there's there's these things that happen where we get to know somebody better and they've got nasty things like JK Rowling being a turf. Obviously I still have feelings about that. <laughs> <laughs> um or or a band breaks up or someone dies or dies by suicide. I think about though the the parasocial relationships where they are actually used to sell you stuff. 
Yes. And and those types of things and and go down these rabbit holes of, you know, you know, I think about like jade eggs and weird crazy crap that that uh someone that will not be named has sold. So like I think there's that <laughs> that element of when our clients are going down this rabbit hole and and taking the advice or buying the products or buying or merch or whatever it is, at what point do we intervene with that? Well, I think part of this is, and this is maybe spending the last part of this episode here, kind of tying everything together because we, in all content creation kinds of things, like this is something where we have sponsors on this podcast and it's being able to look at kind of even what the content creators themselves and what their MO is. I hope that our audience finds that we're pretty genuine, authentic. We're pretty open that the sponsors of our shows are people whose products we've vetted. We feel confident in being able to to do this. We've turned down people that we don't feel fit with the ideals. We've been pretty clear about what our ideals are, but in the larger zeitgeist of content creators, not everybody is that way. And I think that that's, you know, a really big difference in, you know, the few pennies that we get at the end of the the day when it comes after paying our expenses to run a podcast versus people like Jake and Logan Paul, who are millions and millions of dollars that end up coming in. But so much of their stuff is geared around by this stuff. It's cool because we have a bunch of 10 to 15 year olds who are buying into everything that we're doing. And therefore we can just make an overly sweet, you know, energy drink and get that out into the grocery stores. And it becomes, you know, the zeitgeist of what all of the middle schoolers want. My point here is that being able to be clear about, okay, who appreciates the, the, the clarity around people like us compared to people like the Paul brothers ends up being what are the motivations behind things? At least speaking for myself, and I think for you, we enjoy sharing the information we have. I I enjoy being challenged to come up with new ideas to sure. talk about after you know several years of, of presenting on stuff. And every time that we're like, hey, have we actually talked about all of the different aspects of being a therapist? And we keep coming back with like, no, we have new ideas on things. I enjoy those challenges personally for myself, and I enjoy the people who... Uh, come along for the ride with us. Whereas I don't tend to see our audience members as, oh, those are walking cash registers that we need to be able to (laughs) empty out and get your money to us. So, uh, but I think that, you know, kind of getting back to your question here is, I don't think we're the same as most of the really popular content that's out there. And some people are better at disguising kind of that trying to make as much money through their influence as possible and seem kind of very genuine in what they're doing, but their intention is still to make as much money as possible. I think if we prioritized making money, our show would be entirely different. Our relationship with our audience would be entirely different. But in helping our clients be able to figure out this kind of stuff is what is helping them to be able to talk about like, what are the intentions of the people that you're engaging in these parasocial relationships? I know for many of the non-therapeutic people that I tend to follow on social media, a lot of them 
or either artists, uh, musicians, actors, that kind of stuff that I enjoy their work. And in following them, I find that many of their values tend to more or less align with mine. Uh, I've found that I have followed people in the past, and when those values don't align, that I tend to have a changing parasocial relationship with them because it's not something that I either want to support or I recognize even in my own identity is something that I want to have that influence or to be able to spend my emotional energy in kind of holding like, I really like, you know, this one thing that you do, but I really don't like the way that you're approaching these other things. I think when you're talking about it, I kept thinking like, well, we're therapists, you know, we're quote unquote, and this, I hate this, this phrase at this point, because it's been way overused, but like heart centered entrepreneurs or whatever, or, or altruistic or whatever. I mean, some people will follow somebody just because they find them entertaining. And I think to me, the, the, thing that I think about, and, and maybe this is, you know, we're getting close to time, but when I think about the the folks who are following these big personas, potentially highly curated, all of that stuff, buying things from them, going to all the concerts, you know, dropping everything to watch a, a, a live stream or whatever it is, the the decision about when to step in and kind of question that behavior, I think feels very delicate. And, and it's almost like, I think when you have someone, uh, a client who's in a, like a toxic relationship or, or a relationship that's clearly unhealthy for them in some way, you don't want to be like, Hey, get out of that relationship unless it's, it's truly dangerous to them. And, and yet you also don't want to ignore it. And so I feel like to me, and I, I don't know if there's research that backs this up, but I, I think there's that element as a therapist of trying to really understand their perspective and how they're engaging in that relationship and what this person out there, if they're um, altruistic or or very, very greedy, <laughs> if you want to use that word, if what they're engaging in is helpful to them. I, I feel like it, it goes back to you know critical thinking and decision-making and those types of things. And I think so often when we're talking about parasocial relationships, it feels like this fantasy that we're swept away with and we can be completely consumed by it without really recognizing, is this good for me or not? And so I think being able to talk to our clients in a way that helps them make that decision and understand it feels good, but I feel like it can be very delicate, especially for folks who are very, very committed to their parasocial relationships. Well, I think, you know, Maybe the example that I'll use on this is people, you know, going back to your idea around like people who are fans of sports teams, where yeah. either a player on the team is in the news for the wrong reasons, or yeah. a player ends up uh, publicly, you know, bad mouthing the team or gets traded unexpectedly or switches teams that having an idea of some of the parasocial relationships as those things come up in the news allows for us to more readily jump in and talk about things. I think that we've talked about in this episode before we've seen in Facebook groups before of like when big things are happening in the news, we need to be prepared to talk about that with clients. Yeah. If not even kind of bringing that up, I think sometimes it's being able to 
talk more specifically with clients and kind of the unfolding identities out of things. If you have uh, somebody who does talk about like, you know, I make sure that I get on every single one of this person's streams and it's just, you know, such a, a, a lovely sort of, you know, message that's being sent and I'm, you know, spending money beyond my means to be a, a Patreon supporter or buy all their stuff or be at the highest level or that kind of stuff. And so that way I get even more interactions with them. And then they talk about those interactions and it's, you know, that was, that didn't sit right with me. Mm. Uh, those are, those are the times that you're preparing for or the times that it becomes really apparent that the, the messages that your clients start talking about do seem to be tied to something that comes from a, a place that may end up being very dangerous. You know, I look at some of the clients that I work with that, you know, start really all of a sudden, uh, I tend to work with a lot of teenage guys. So if all of a sudden, you know, a lot more of the content that ends up getting talked about is really toxic men's rights sort of stuff, I'll get a lot more curious about like, you know, hey, what are you looking into to, you know, where are you, where are you getting your research from on this? Um, that ends up helping to be like, okay, this is coming from uh, this particular influencer. This is coming from, you know, this particular corner of the internet that does allow for more open discussions. And resoundingly, what I've found is that challenging these ideas isn't necessarily something where it's like, no, no, don't listen to those people. <laughs> a, a lot more of it is, have you considered some of these other things in addition to that? And that's yeah. really a lot where a lot more of where the growth that I see in these particular issues come up. But a lot of it starts with being curious and getting your clients to be able to share all of the influences that they're having in their lives. So that way they're able to more accurately communicate with you where this stuff is coming from. I mean, it's, even, and I, I'm going to show my age here, it's even recognizing where con content is is able to be consumed. You know, like I, I think I stay pretty up to date on things, but like somebody will start talking about stuff and I'm like, okay, I, I'm, I don't really go into Reddit. I don't go into TikTok. I don't do a lot of things that I think younger or more engaged social media engaged uh clients might go to get content and so i think for me it's it's about understanding the question can be broad enough that i might be able to get the information even if i can't say oh yeah I, i'm on that reddit you know thread or whatever it is <laughs> you know it's 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 being able to seek the influences whatever they are wherever they're coming from and trying to do maybe even a little bit of research, you know, like understanding, you know, before we started recording, you were like, yeah, if somebody's a, a Swifty, I want to make sure I'm paying attention to <laughs> what's going on with Taylor Swift. Right. And so I think it's, it can be a little bit more work because there's so many of our clients who are, are impacted by some of these things. I, I think it, there's probably a decision to make at some point if somebody's a Swifty versus somebody's a casual fan of the Lakers. I like, I think there's, <laughs> There's, you know, different levels of of influence on the clients and, and we don't have to be aware of every single thing and on social media every single minute. I think that that leads to our own uh, right. media yeah. addiction. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think it is a good point because it's it's 
there is a an old, you know, kind of idea that we only are aware of what the clients bring to us. But if we don't know what's happening in the world um, and we're we're a true blank slate of, of, among all things, I think that becomes harmful to our clients because if we don't understand how someone's interacting in the world, we may not identify the benefits or more uh, nefariously, we don't identify the dangers of of them interacting with that type of content. So some of the benefits that I want to make sure that we also hit before we wrap up is leaning into the positive aspects of these things too, of being able to, you know, see kind of what it is that people emulate people, what they want. Like, you know, if using Swifties as an example, like what is it about Taylor Swift that people really want to either be like or to have engaged like what are what are some of the psychodynamic almost you know imaginary relationship kinds of things of what it would be like to interact with them and where that drive ends up being represented in people's lives and how they can model what they see from people you know if i'm not a swifty i (laughs) sorry everyone like but it's something where it's like okay what is it I don't know. Are you a Swifty? Like, what is it about Taylor Swift? That, <laughs> okay, maybe we have to. <laughs> um, but even being able to use kind of a pseudo blank slate on this to help be able to get some of that projective identification as far as, okay, tell me what it is about being a Swifty that you really are are wanting. What do you get out of this? What do you... What do you see in her that you start to get people's hopes and dreams and ideas that you can then help to build into kind of more concrete plans as far as what about trying this out in real life? If you like the put together aspect of things, if you like the, you know, being able to be strong and have an identity around um, being able to voice your opinion and stand up and be unshaken by it, that what would that be like to try that out in real life? Or here's yeah. this opportunity where, you know, all right, let's put your inner Taylor Swift in. So that way you can speak up to your sister, or to your mom about uh, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. I, I think, I think for me, what I'm hearing, and, and this is the work that I've done with my clients that have some of these more, you know, kind of intense parasocial relationships is potentially how do you emulate the character or the person or whatever. I had a client that would kind of emulate a character to to display confidence kind of the fake it till you make it let me act like this character but i think there's also this other element of identity work and values and you know some of it can be about relationships and and how they interact with the world or the messages they have but i think a lot of it actually comes to the values that are presented and and I think that's the hard part about parasocial breakups when you find out somebody is like been saying this stuff and then they're exactly the opposite. That's my my issue around J.K. Rowling. But I think there's that element of being able to understand themselves. I mean, it, like all the things that we consume are are potentially a window into our our soul, so to speak. And so I think that there's identity work. I think there's attachment work. How do they interact with the world? How do how do the clients interact with their parasocial relationship? Um, I mean, I feel like there's so much clinical fodder here. And grief work. You know, this is where a lot of people, you know, myself included, we go through a a grief process when celebrities die, when bands break up, that it is dealing with grief as far as 
all right, what what did this mean at this time for us? And mm -hmm. there's plenty of stories and research out there that says that the breakups and those parasocial breakups end up being processed by a lot of people in the same way as real relationships that they have with people. Yeah. Well, I think that there's the times when it's about the parasocial relationship or the band or whatever it is, but then it can also be about, you know, when it came into their lives and and how it what it meant to them at the time and what it's what what it served for them. You know, like if if this is a an escapism, you know, if it's gone, now I'm facing reality. So it like it, like it's so layered on on what we can look at here. I think it's if we don't do this, we're missing a lot in people's exactly. lives. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's really the takeaway on this is making sure that this is a part of the conversation that we treat it as something that's very real because for a lot of clients it is and there's yeah. a lot of research that backs this up and you know we pointed to a couple of populations during this episode but these relationships exist in pretty much all aspects of people at all ages in life and mm -hmm. you know there's the People, you know, we we pointed to the ways that like Popeye can be used for kids and this kind of stuff. We have those relationships as adults. We'll continue to have them into yep. our elder years. There's going to be the opinions that we have about people, good, bad, and otherwise. And all of that is clinical fodder for being able to ask, you know, what's underneath that? What's underneath those feelings that you have developing? Why do you like this person? Why do you hates this person yeah um, there's a lot of uh research that we came across that didn't really fit into this episode around how people in political circles use kind of parasocial relationships to predict who's likely to vote for things so uh, there's a lot of space around how people's feelings develop around people ideas inanimate objects cartoons any of that kind of stuff <laughs> that we can ask about. And that helps us to get a deeper insight into clients and hopefully clients having a deeper insight into themselves. You can find our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com. If you want to get continuing education credits, follow the instructions in the show notes or at the beginning and end of the episode. If you want to support us, uh, you know, we're going to give you that option in your parasocial relationship with us. <laughs> um, please consider uh, supporting our sponsors, and they're the ones that help make us to be able to continue to put this content out. Uh, join our Facebook group, follow us on our social media, and until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like one unit of continuing education for listening to this episode, go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, purchase this course, and pass the post-test. A CE certificate will appear in your profile once you've successfully completed the steps. Once again, that's moderntherapistcommunity.com. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. 
Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.